I'm nothing in comparison to the music. The Detroit sound is um, the hardest sound out there, hands down. Because you, you're dealing with uh, a city that's full of people that are working, people that are struggling. You know, when it comes to the music, it's serious. Everybody here takes the music seriously. As a DJ in 1982 here in Detroit, I had my first job was as a DJ in a roller rink. And I also, moving forward in my DJ career through to the early 90s, I worked in many of the top top 40 clubs in my municipality and also in uh, the Tri-County area. And I had a mobile DJ company as well that had three systems and did everything from high school dances to weddings. I mean, you, you, you run the gambit. is sort of how I found electronic music is my involvement in the in as a DJ in this market how it sort of all happened it's it's the readers digest version of it is there's a gentleman by the name of Stephen Ream in, from Detroit here that was involved with a company by the name of Voom V O O M which uh, if you study rave legend or history in Detroit at all Voom was one of the originators of the quote unquote warehouse party in in our market here. Um, my younger brother, Sam Fotis, who is also my boss at Paxahow now, he's operations director and a partner at Paxahow, um, and my current business partner and audio rescue team were had their own promotion company that they were doing parties in smaller places like uh, lofts and people's basements and what have you, because at this time, what was occurring is it was sort of gelling from just being like random private things going on in small pace, uh, places into a bit more organized things going on in a bit larger spaces that were more accessible to more people. So the story goes that they were working on something together and they weren't real super happy with the situation with their sound. So one afternoon while I was, and I ran my company out of my parents' garage at the time, Sam came to me and completely lied to me about what it was that he wanted me to do to get me to do it, which was basically pull all three of my sound systems and all my spares together and, and you know, the, the typical pitch, oh, dude, it's going to be great. There's tons of really good-looking girls there. We can do what we want until whatever hour of the morning. You're going to get paid. And I was just, like, clicking, checking the yes boxes. Um sort of the gravity of that how this all sort of meshes together is you know I had been DJing for a long time and really hustling and I was sort of have felt that in the sort of market that I was doing with the mobile DJ company I had reached a plateau and there weren't too many challenges anymore it was sort of drudgery sign the client up get the contract filled out go do you know what I'm saying like there was no challenge to it anymore so this was interesting to me this new thing and I most certainly knew about what was being called techno music. I most certainly, when I was not working, was frequenting my colleagues' nightclubs where they work and hearing the no UFOs and all and inner city and all, and all that stuff that was techno and house music as it bled into the places we were working. So I had an, a spark in my mind of what I might be in for. Well, I went and did the first party and uh, D Win was one of the headliners there which we'll talk more about D for sure. Um, all of my stuff got exploded and I got, I got uh, stiffed from my hands for the loadout and it was upstairs and it sucked in a lot of ways, but I was hooked at that point. And um, a season later, I officially sold Elite Sound, my mobile DJ company, and decided that I was gonna turn my focus towards what would be called now being a quote-unquote sound man, which I had no idea about. I mean, I most certainly had my systems, and for mobile DJ systems in the 80s, I had nice sound systems with subwoofers and multiple amplifiers and what have you. But that's when I sort of figured out that, well, I think maybe this is for me. And, you know, electronic music, 
and the scene here in Detroit, I'm a product of that. Just like that's why I'm, I've taken the time to spell this anecdote out for you is that when people ask me about influences on me in my life, you know, I had many influences, DJs, producers, other sound technicians, mentors from the jazz world and doing sound that I that put me in a position to succeed. But really the catalyst was what was going on in Detroit in the 90s with electronic music and techno is I am living proof of another person that a, a whole career, you know, 30 years of a career spanned from the magic that was happening here during that time period, you know, and I could cite certain parties or what have you, but the second one of the second most important things to me is my experience that I had with D. Wynn, Daryl Wynn. D. Wynn is a very, is a worldwide known DJ from, and producer from Detroit. One of the originals, one of the OGs, as the, as the youngsters say. And D played in the beginning when we were in the spaces like the Bank, bank Bankle Building, the Transmat Loft, Lofts, and places like that, before before Packard and before Mac and Bellevue and all the larger places, that was like revision three of what was going on. Okay, so the Packard right. and stuff, when that was... Kicking off, that was already like that version three. That was like version one was me doing John Aquaviva in a, in a girl's basement, giving him a guitar amp as a DJ monitor. That would have been Rev One, okay? Rev 2, I would say, would be like I was explaining when things moved from some of those smaller private places and engagements into places that were more accessible by more by a, more, a larger amount of people and more people from all different walks of life because it's a public place, it's more accessible, etc. Um, and then sort of the three, which what I would say would are the parties that came before the first round of the authorities really coming down on it in Detroit would have been Mac and Bellevue, Packard, uh, Waterman Space, all these other spaces that were like, I would say, over 350 people would fit in there. Over 350. That was when, starting in part two, as I've explained, that's when this quote-unquote sound system war started. When, you know... Another thing is, is that you can go to the UK and you can go to Japan and you can go to Far East Asia and, and even on the West Coast a little bit in the United States or New York and there's something that I call sound culture going on, okay? Like in the UK, they have... Uh, Sound um, clashes. They have sound clashes, and they have there's a there's a friggin' uh, Facebook page called Rig Porn. You know what I'm saying? Where people just put pictures of their setups up. Could be sh raggedy. Could be doesn't matter. It's like yeah, sound culture. Like people starting in their garages, patching stuff together with extension cords, taking what money they have and building it and building it and building it. This was the time in Detroit. This was the golden age of sound culture in Detroit. Okay, like there were so many cats that really wanted to get in the game of making it boom and were just from different levels of how, what the resources were that they had and the thing is is that when it started taking off in the larger spaces there were no real sound companies that would pay attention to techno music okay like you like now one of my most amazing teammates in, in my production management work that I do is Thunder Audio here in Detroit. They're a worldwide touring sound company. They've done Met Metallica, Marilyn Manson, Yo Gotti. They're out with Big Sean, like Dolly Parton. Like you name the act, they've been around the world with them, okay? But they're a company that's based here in Detroit. If you went to, and there's a few like that, if you went to a big, to a large or medium sound company that was a legit sound company with legit gear and said, hey, I got this giant party in a warehouse somewhere that we're not really supposed to be in, they'd be like, ha, 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 and hang the phone up. Plus at the budget numbers that were available at that time to spend on a sound system. So this is where the sound culture came from. The smaller parties, they were doing it themselves. They were pulling gear in together from wherever and making it into something. And where the sort of turning point came was my now current business partner, Alan Bogle, ha had been to a real junglist party in Toronto at the time. What, what year would this be? This would be 90-91, okay? They'd been to a real jung a junglist party in Toronto where it's like 80 bazillion subs, camouflage nets, dark ass room with two lights and that gun trap mean rewind, you know what I'm saying? Jungle is massive. You know what I mean? And came back changed. Came back from it changed and saw me 
and said, Mike, I just have freaking heard some shit that we gotta do. And I don't know how we're gonna do it, but I know that you're gonna be the guy. This yeah. gentleman, Alan what's Bogle. his relationship with you? You guys are Alan really Bogle good friends. Alan is part of what I call the our OG crew from back in the day that hung out with Steven, my brother, all of the guys that were sort of like instrumental in some of these parties that occurred that so, really pushed things forward. Uh, would you say a group of promoters and- Promoters, music lovers. producers, music lovers, DJs, just pals, what have you. And we sort of took this idea, we didn't know it but at the time, but now I call it sound culture, and saw what, how we could push it with what resources were available to us and what money we were able to dig up. You know, I mean, it was, when we got to the Packard finally, that was like when, at the time, the first significant show there was when we did Richie Houghton's first ever Plastic Man live show there. What year was this? A lot of foggy memory, Close huh? the mid-90s. Mid-90s. All right. I'm sure you could look that up. I might be, I, mean, I know I'm close, but I'm not exactly on. So, and that was the first time we had a big room and we had what we thought was a big sound system. You know, it would have been like 16 subs was a big sound system for us, right? And that was the first time that we had like a thousand people in a room listening to Richie Houghton play live on a big sound system. That's where the sound wars started. That's when things really started to ramp up. There was some cats that were coming in from Toronto that did the Jack Party here in Detroit, which is legendary for the first time that people came into a room in Detroit and the bass literally like took your breath away. When you talk to people about the Jack Party, that's what they'll tell you about is the sound system. That's where the gnomer that Rich uses occasionally came from was the jack parties here in Detroit. There was a jack one and two or something like that or whatever. And now he uses that gnomer occasionally in certain things that he does. That's where that is from that party and that experience. So that's another notable thing in me speaking about the sound of Detroit. Those experiences sort of, well, I don't want to say sort of, were were indemnifying in the way that they shaped what I call my perception of how that music is supposed to sound on any given sound system. And sort of shaped my yardstick or frame of reference that in a very formative time for me when anything could have shaped me. I could have ended up mixing live jazz all the time or what have you, but it was being enamored with techno, quote unquote, that helped me be put in a position after, when I got involved with larger events and I was working doing uh, bigger and different things, it also, in a very positive manner, shaped my overall understanding on how good music on a big PA system is supposed to sound, period. Okay? That's another magical thing that techno gave me and, and my experiences and being immersed in it in the time, a very formative time for everybody, was it made the fiber of what makes me a, a decent sound guy, I would say, is understanding how to reproduce low frequency. Right? Understanding on how to make sure that a lot of the, the quantitative things, the engineering things that it takes to make a PA system work correctly, came from slugging it out in the dark, being in a room with 1,200 people and half of the freaking system going out and there's no lights on. Like, and having more and more of these DJs coming in from out of town that were of the stature that I had to make sure that what was deployed was tight. Like always, because they were coming to our town to play on what they heard was quote unquote the shit everywhere else in the world, so to speak. And uh, it really put me in a position professionally for when I stepped up and started branching out and doing a lot of more different things, which I have expertise in all the disciplines in doing live music. I've been on all the large consoles. I've mixed acts like George Benson, Earl Clue, Yellow Jacket, Spyrogyra, like you name it. I've mixed heavy metal. I've worked on corporate gigs. But the lesson here is, is that Detroit and electronic music in Detroit is what gave me the ability to do all that in the that I do. And it's interesting because there's a dichotomy. When I run, you know how it is when you're working in a field and you run into new people and you come from techno. They kind of look at you and they give you the side eye a little bit. Why would you say that's the case in, well, in the music industry? Because in the industry of live music, there is still a lot of animosity towards electronic music. And then so there always has been. It's been the undercurrent. And especially with people that call themselves technical people where their heritage is from there, we're sort of looked down on. 
I have lots of good sto- offline stories for you about that, but <laughs> good, good ones. But also with all of the negative, the negativity that's come in public forum with the advent of EDM, it's sort of made it worse. It's sort of been like gas- gasoline on the fire because you have to understand something. It doesn't make them bad people, but people who don't understand electronic music and techno and what have you to really understand it, they see that EDM thing and they think that we and all of it is like that. They, it's like, it's the st- and it's more rampant in America because it's the standard American stigma, which has got us in a lot of trouble American, American about a lot dance of music right now. You know what I'm saying? About putting a label on something without really knowing what it is. You know, right, and sometimes right. a negative label. So... Um, more often than not a negative way. I think EDM sort of killed everything. <laughs> I don't think it killed everything, but it most certainly for the people that are not three-dimensional thinkers out there in the world, and again, I'm not, I don't saying that very respectfully, um, you see that and you just assume that that's all it is. If the first jazz record you ever listened to was like a really bad smooth jazz record and you said all jazz is like that, you'd be losing out. It's the same thing. And because there's some very negative um, outward behavior that's also associated with EDM by, by certain artists, then that just is gasoline on the fire, you know? When you take, you know, I'm planning on taking my parents to submerge to the museum so that, and my parents are old, they're 80s and 90s, okay? And they're both retired educators and they're very interested in what I do and what I've been doing. And I think it's gonna be an interesting scenario that goes on when I take them there and John Collins gives them the one too because I know that they have a certain idea in their mind but they have no idea about the history behind and when you look at the instruments and and are explained the ground-breaking music that was made by them and the challenges that were presented to these artists when they were merely trying to express themselves and give this music to the world as a new genre, okay, in a world that didn't want to hear anything about music made by machines, okay? This is what I'm talking about. I'm sure their eyes are going to be opened, you know? And that's, that's the issue now that we have with, you know, people say that it, electron, the, the scene in Detroit peaked. It had its peak and it's over with, you know? And that everybody's sort of just like chasing a dream now. I don't, I don't see it that way. I see it that now that myself and all of my colleagues that are of, of my same age group and experience and what we're doing, I feel that it's our time now to show everybody, show the new people the way. Because there are so many younger, newer, fresh faces and fresh minds, that's what's important, that are, are capable of cr- critical thinking and do question everything, all right? You know, all this bullshit about millennials and how they question anything, everything and all that. I'm like, I have a son that's a millennial. I embrace that because so many of us just followed what we were told to do. So I feel that now it's our responsibility to take this opportunity and the knowledge that we have and the, and the understanding of the history and the understanding of the things that went on and basically give it to everybody else. That's what we're supposed to do, I think. Shut it down. Shut it down. Get the step in. Shut it down. Shut it down. Get the step in. Shut it down. Shut it down. So, I guess setting up a rig or setting up the sound system in your warehouse <laughs> parties was pretty much boot camp for anything that you've done now. That is a very good way of articulating Because now you've got all the lights on, you can do all of that. This is comfort living. <laughs> it's, you know, that's, that's a very simple way of explaining it. And yes, you know, there have been, I've been in some pretty sticky situations and some of the stuff that I've been doing recently where I've got, you know, for lack of an easier way of explaining it, everybody freaking out around me. Right? And I'm always seen as the person that even if it's outside of my box of responsibility, I'm always seen as a person that people can come to because I'm not going to freak out because I've been there. Right. I've been to that other place that you talked about that you articulated so well. And uh, it makes me proud that that's my heritage. It does. It really does. It makes me proud. You know, we I live here and I'm immersed in it all the time. And sometimes when, you know, everybody gets down on their self once in a while, you know, especially when you get as old as I'm going to be very soon, <laughs> I'm going to turn 50 in April. And uh, but that's what I think about. I'm like, man, 
this place is viewed as such a wonderful place from all over the world because of all of the amazing things that have come from here. And this is my heritage. Like I have a heritage in this. I had a small part in it. I had involvement in it being what it's being. And now I have this gift that I can give to new people that are interested in it. Absolutely. Which time frame would you say those parties occurred at when you started the sound war, as you call it? That was, okay, so that would have been when we were moving into some of those bigger places that you may have heard of, um, you know, Packard for certain. There were many spaces inside Packard that we did parties in. So within the Packard it itself, there was different arenas, would you say? Well, yeah. So the Packard plant, which was originally built to manufacture Packard automobiles, um, anybody who studied war history, especially World War II, understands the arsenal of democracy. Right. Detroit was a very large part of the arsenal of democracy, and they built everything from tanks to airplanes at the Packard plant, okay? And they had, now, many heavy manufacturing in period back at period back in that time wasn't so spread out like people think of manufacturing more in a modern terms where you have a factory that builds things and the parts are brought in from all over and and made elsewhere and brought outsourced and brought in and then the products built in the factory this isn't wasn't how it was done uh, back in that time in history they had machine shops and wood shops and mold plants and prototyping and the, everything was within that circle so what you have is you have a big rectangle of buildings with an open yard in the middle okay and basically you know if you were working on this new thing and you needed a spindle spun up for it you would go to the machine shop and see them with a print and they would spin it up and then send it over that's how it was everything was self-contained within that company's place to manufacture whatever product it was you know during World War II like I said they were building everything from airplanes to tanks to troop carriers they they made guns there you name it that they made there so there's all these spaces that's that was the that was the to me, the two coolest things about Packard is getting a truck in there. Right. Easy, anywhere in there, okay? Number two, all of these really, really cool spaces. And then also in the basement of the place was a bomb shelter. Two levels down in the basement of almost the entire place. Was the Packard abandoned? Why? How did so Packard was abandoned. I don't know what year it was abandoned in, but it was shut down. And then, I don't want to say it was abandoned, but because we paid people to be there. All right, and that would might be a conversation for somebody that knows a little bit more about it. But it most certainly was in disrepair. And when we would go there to load in, to do to load our sound in and our lights in and what have you, nobody was telling us, well, you can't go here and you can't go there. Cause so there was a lot of exploring that went on. And uh, I mean, we, we walked all over that place. That place was, was phenomenal. It's unfortunate that it's polluted, but um, in regards to that, yes, it was Packard. There was another place at, space at Mac and Bellevue. Another legendary spot is right underneath the Ambassador Bridge on the Detroit side called the Bridge Space. You've seen these, um, these truck transfer places. It's basically a rectangular slab of concrete built up to truck height that has doors on all sides. It's a metal building that has roll-up doors on all sides. We did a party there with, that was, it's a legendary party. Um, Dean Major, one of our dear friends, may rest in peace, uh, passed a few years ago, had a company called System. S-Y-S-T-E-M. You can look that up. That, that's, a, that's a sound system company? or Promotion company. Okay. okay promoter. Okay. Promoter. And he did a party called Fuck the System. Okay. And it was at the bridge space. And one side of this building has like 20 truck doors. Okay. The DJ booth was in the middle truck door. And then... Six truck doors this way, six truck doors that way, full of speakers from ground to top. And then the whole thing down on the ground in front of the loading dock, full of subwoofers. Outside, right underneath the Ambassador Bridge, like pointing at Canada. Wow. Yeah. Why was it pointing at Canada? Well, because of the way it was arranged. Okay. You know, sort of pointing at Canada. It was the big park, you know. And we had Terry Mullen and Josh Wink and... Oh man, I'm having such a brain brain fart right now. Blurry times, huh? Uh, but DJs of those Valor uh-huh. at a completely illegal party mm. outside, underneath the Ambassador Bridge, clearly before 9/11. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I can see <laughs> and that, yeah. you know, there were some interesting arrangements that were had to be made. You know, we had a I'm not going to mention the name of it, but we had a a well feared motorcycle gang that was the secu- outer rim of security at our party. So when the police did come, they were just told to leave. 
Oh, so there was a truce between the motorcycle gang? We hired them. Okay, got it. And they basically would, they're like, you don't want to come in here. So right. were these parties, they're, they're obviously illegal, but they, they were well intended because they, they were a hub for creative people to, to dance and, and, and the, kind of... The illegality of it was there wasn't a permit you could buy to do that party. It didn't exist like it does nowadays. If you want to throw an outdoor party in a parking lot, you can go down to City Hall and see buildings and safety engineering and the fire marshal and electrical inspector and get all the permits that you need, a dance permit, hire a catering company to come in and bring their liquor license with them. You can do it legally, all right? In that time, you couldn't, it didn't exist. So that was the sort of renegade part of it was like, we're gonna do this. We're gonna showcase our talent to our people in our atmosphere okay which is very positive um but we had to get creative in how we protect protected ourselves you know i mean now most certainly there did come the time when the police would form up and come in military style and shut everything down take everybody to jail take all the money do all kinds of scandalous things you know but um that space to stick to the point of your question that space was one of the legendary spaces. We probably had got away with doing maybe about four or five full-scale bangers there before they're like, you just can't do this anymore. And apart from the permit reason, were, was there a lot of, say, drugs or, or kind of gangs hanging out there Listen, that made it even worse? I can tell you that, honestly, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that there wasn't drugs. Of course there was, it was a rave party. Okay, but there wasn't any violence or negative activity that occurred from the inside out ever. That that was never a problem. Very very positive community. It all you know you always have a couple bad apples when you have new people that are coming in. But I have to tell you, there was the circle of everybody that knew each other at least by face and by name kept the riffraff out. Okay. And we never had a problem with fights being started or shootings or stabbings or any of that, those kinds of things that maybe inferred that occurred. You know, the only trouble that we had is when the cops would come and shut us down. <laughs> and, you know, when they first started in on us, it was horrible how they were doing it because they didn't know, they assumed all the things that you've asked me about that I told you of not going for, there wasn't prostitution going on. There wasn't organized large-scale drug dealing going on. There wasn't any of that kind of stuff going on. It was the typical shit that goes down at a party. Yeah. But the police would come in and they would come down really hard. They were basically raiding a drug manufacturing operation or something like that, you know? Flak vests, shotguns, mm -hmm. freaking the whole deal. And you know, they got themselves in trouble. It's unfortunate they got in trouble for the reasons that they did, you know, male officers searching underage female girls, okay, all kinds of stuff like that. And you know what, they were too stupid to realize that some of these kids come to their parties. The one girl, her dad is some hotshot lawyer in West Bloomfield. Like, how about you think before you act? How about you come in and knock on the door and say, hey, you are not supposed to be doing this. You need to stop and running everybody out. Okay. They didn't understand, nor did they want to understand. And the only way that they began to understand it is when they got sued a few times and had to pay settlements and people were fired. And that's when they were like, oh. So we went through a period there where we just couldn't do it. That's, so that's probably around the mid-90s. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We went through a period there where nothing large-scale could occur. There was these smaller things that occurred here and there that were very private. What that did, though, is it forced Detroit to step up its game in the nightclubs? Okay, that's what happened. There was this transition that happened, and um, some very good things came out of that too. You know, the genesis of TV Lounge came out of that. TV Lounge being quite an iconic place. TV Lounge is basically this really awesome dump in Detroit. That's our home, basically. You know, like it's where everybody grabs. And listen, I call all of these bars dumps very affectionately, even the ones that have, that are, bougie and looking nice on the inside. That's just how Yeah, dive stones, whatever. Characteristic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Old Miami's another one, right? Yeah. 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 You know, Old Miami was always there though, because Old Miami uh, was established as a corner bar by the original owner of the place where a lot of vets from Detroit hang out at. And it just sort of old Miami sort of has adopted electronic music okay. in, a, in a certain sense. You know, TV Lounge is a is a 
Ashler Stone of electronic music in Detroit. I mean, it's they do other things there, and they have a heritage with the urban crowd in Detroit as well, with the owner that's very positive, that's still carried out there. But the bust, what we call Bustville happening, where they were busting everything, sort of pushed the genre into the nightclubs. And some new nightclubs opened, and they were open for a little while and then closed. But what happened was it really started to develop the mainstream uh, scene of electronic music in in the Detroit area, if you will. And uh, I think that it's a good thing, you know. And then in the meantime, what occurred is Detroit started to catch up, all right? You know, as far as being able to have an event somewhere that is not an event space, okay? Um, I think that... Paxahow taking over movement and taking that event from what it was and turning it into year by year, stepping up the game, sort of helped the powers that be in Detroit also because of the relationships that our team has with people on city council and at city hall that work in all these positions that like, okay, yeah, these guys are into their techno, but they're not, they're normal people like us they just this is what they do you know and sort of started having the realization from the inside out and not just from us but from now other people just like underdog rats other yeah other and and other entities starting to be accepted like real businessmen and like real purveyors of our of our genre and our culture and then the respect starts flowing back and forth and then everybody gets lifted up a little bit i'm encapsulating a lot of things in a very small sentences sure. but that is the one of the most positive things that came out of the sort of I don't want to say death of the underground, but basically the kicking the balls to the underground by by the police is it forced everything to sort of gel and turn into something something different and even more beautiful, I think. And, you know, listen, there are a lot of people that are saying, long live the underground and blah, 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 and what have you. You know, everything has to grow and change and morph. And who knows what it's going to be like in 10 years when I'm still around or in 50 or 60 years when I'm not around anymore. But I think that it's more important to look onward than to be chasing after a feeling that you're never going to get back again. That that was that. You know what I mean? And I think that that's a a perception or an understanding of it that comes from maturity. You know, I think about those times. Sometimes when we're having, sometimes when we're doing a show and things are really clicking and you can feel the positivity in the atmosphere and the vibe, I think about that. But what's happening now wouldn't have happened if we wouldn't have had that. You know, and I think that I don't want to call anybody any names, but a lot of those peeps that try to hang on to that are only limiting themselves by that. But so, I mean, one of the questions I had while you were talking was where did everyone go when the the bus started to really happen at a serious level? Because in the height of the raves, there were probably thousands, would you say? Well, you have to understand we had a lot of people that traveled in the Midwest. That was another really awesome phenomenon that I'm sure was happening in other places around around the country and around the world. But like when there was a big party in Detroit, people came from all around. Like states Cincinnati, out. Ohio. Yes, came from all around. And we would travel too. You know, like, like you go to Chicago, you go to... Go to Chicago, go to Indiana, uh go to Wisconsin, uh, St. Louis we would go to. That was sort of like the reach of, it was like the next ring, if you will, of associations with promoters from those towns and DJs from those towns and what have you. You could probably get somewhere between three and 500 people together if it was like a big event. But if you wanted to go beyond that, as far as attendance, you'd be promoting beyond the, beyond the, the city and most certainly beyond the state, absolutely. And they did that. They, it was like one of the things, we well, have heard about the map point and the info line, right? You know about that, right? So like you'd get a flyer and the location wouldn't be on the flyer. It would have an info line, okay? You'd call the info line, this is before, this is like, right when pagers started being popular and it was a voicemail box and the info line would tell you where to go get a map okay that could change on the the night of the party too alright so you'd go to the map point and they'd hand you a little flyer that had a map with 
somebody that worked for our party would have a would have a it's just a little piece of paper with a map on it and like a star would indicate where the location was and you would have to find it all right same thing with flyers let's say there was somebody in Cincinnati that was doing a party and you were doing a party you would say okay I'm gonna send you my flyers and you distribute them at your party and vice versa or you would go visit them and that's how sort of the distribution of the, of the flyers and, and the word getting out. And usually on the flyer, there'd be an info line number. And then you would call the info line and say, these DJs, blah, 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 blah. You know, that type of thing for the advent of mobile phones and, and social media. That's which is crazy what we have now, you know, instant gratification. But people really had to get out there and do what I call beat and chew leather. You know, beat in the street. And shaking hands with people and putting flyers in their hands and going to this record store and going to that coffee house night and what have you and really putting the word out in the street that this is the thing that we want you to come to. Absolutely. Um, so when the crackdowns happened, most people went back to their, their hometowns like Ohio, Cincinnati, whatnot. And different towns have different levels of crackdowns that were going on. And then some, a large amount would, would go to TV Lounge and the sort of secondary, like, you know, the, the club replacements. Yes. And others would just kind of get a real job or what? Like how Kinda. Yeah. You know, the, what I would say I co-owned another sound company during that time period, okay? It's like the late 90s. Before Audio Rescue Team, okay? I co-owned a sound company that most everybody in our scene from Detroit knows of this company was called Burst. B-U-R-S-T, Professional Sound Electric Systems. My ex-business partner is deceased now, but um, we had a time period there. So Brian and I, my business partner, when at like just post the first ever the Plastic Man show, the live show, decided that we had had enough and trying to get large sound companies interested in renting us gear to use. So we first took on the idea that we'd buy a large sound system together and we would do this stuff. Okay, because Burst was a company that threw parties and my smallest amount of sound gear that I had, Brian hired me to usually do one of the rooms at his parties. That's how we met, okay? And when when the police came down on it, that's when we took that company and turned it into a sound company. Because like, well, we're not gonna be able to throw these parties anymore. We can see how all the gear. We're gonna start doing corporate gigs and start doing live music and start doing festivals. And that first, Five years of doing that was rough because there were really no large rave parties going on until, it's, until it started to bounce back a little bit. Until you could find a place like Tangent Gallery that had an occupancy permit and had bathrooms and exit lights so that at least they weren't going to come in there for that. The only risk that you had is how much time were they going to let you go after 2.30 in the morning before they shut you down. You know what I'm saying? So it started to gain momentum again then. And, and then as I explained, because of the visibility of certain operators in the electronic music market in Detroit, we started to be able to like rent spaces and get permits to do this and, 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 and what have you, like I, yeah, like I explained. And things started to turn around, but I think we all knew that it was never gonna go back to the other way. You know what I'm saying? It was never going to go back the way. How are you going to go back to being 20-something and basically having no rules? No rules or no roadmap. Like, you're basically doing... Your, your, your future decisions are based on the positive parts of the experiences that you just had. Okay, so you spend a weekend doing two shows. During the week, you're like... How do we top that? What are we going to do next? Everybody's always thinking about what DJs are we going to put in place? What decor are we going to put in place? How are we going to deploy the sound system? What cool space are we going to find? And nobody was telling you you couldn't do that. There's nobody saying that's wrong, the wrong way to do it. That, you know, you can't do that. You can't put this sound system in that space, etc. Everything is based on the judgment of your last party. That's correct. And it's like, how and do I top good, that? What wasn't? And what, when you, when... When uh, and Alan, my business partner, and I, and as I explained earlier in the interview, he's one of the people that I was working for. He will uh, talk would talk about how 
we would go to all of our ancillary hangouts and just like talk to people that had been there and have this interaction of what did you think? What did you like? What didn't you like? What were your experiences? And it wasn't in in a sort of question and answer format, but it was just everybody hanging out talking about the experience. That would have been the feedback of how to help you. It was all super analog and all super, super person to person, eye to eye, voice and ear to voice and ear, which is like the complete opposite of what it is nowadays. And, um, I think that's a large part of why it was so awesome is because it was a personal interaction on every level. It's the community as well. That's right. And that's what gives it that's what gives it the community is the fact that just like you and I are sitting here right now having a conversation, I might have been at Zoot's Coffee House with four or five other fellow DJs or sound guys or people that just like the music talking about what was great about the party and what was shite about the party. You know what I'm saying? And then thinking about those experiences when I would be hanging out with my mates and colleagues and saying, well, this is what I heard. What did you hear? Oh, I talked to so-and-so and blah, blah, blah. And then sort of formulating through our own business model or our own model of what a party should be from all those experiences, not just ours. Interesting um, that you mentioned Zoots because I was doing a bit of reading on. Uh, oh yeah, <coughs> from Red that Bull. used to be like one of our. our <coughs> that was a hangout, right? Offices. Yeah. Right. So that was like one of one of the HQs, right? Yeah. Because um, I was reading a, a past interview on Red Bull Music Academy, and Zoots was kind of like the layover between weekends on on how to scheme for better parties on the on, on the forthcoming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, tell me more about like you know what you know the the, the importance of Zoots and. More so like the type of characters and personalities that were hanging out there. Well, I think that we can use that as an example, but there was probably maybe like 20 places like that around Detroit. And all like like coffee houses? Coffee houses, um, speakeasies, uh, even in people's houses that we used to hang out at regularly, you know, during the week and decompress, if you will. Um, Calm down. Sure. (laughs) That too. (laughs) It was could have been anybody from a close friend or a brother in arms or a family member to uh, an extended friend or just somebody like if it's in a public place it could have been anybody you know you could and it's that whole like community thing like being a single man young man you could walk into a place like zoots and run into a young lady that you saw at the party but didn't get to talk to that's another aspect of the community thing of it and sit down and like have a cup and like chat get a phone number not get a phone number get told to go fuck off whatever it is you know what I'm saying or um, you know maybe one of the DJs is there one of the opening DJs that you know or and then also on the aspect of maybe that opening DJ guy talks to this person that they never met before and that person he or she is like man I was at the party I saw your set it was fucking amazing I was standing in front the whole time you know there's that sort of uh, entanglement with with these conversations it makes me think that the raves and the parties were just purely about music. They, there wouldn't be too many conversations happening there. Oh, there wasn't a lot of talking going on. It was but just you know, purely dancing. Go, I can tell you that this is a big difference now in comparison is you go to a party, whether it's at a club or a festival or what have you, and you've got a core p- group of people dancing, all right, but then you got a lot of people hanging out and doing whatever, okay? That was not the case, all right? I mean... I can close my eyes and get snapshots every time I blink my eyes of being at the console and it is fucking banging going off. Like, it's so hot that I have my fucking shirt off, okay? Like, that is the level of what's going on. People have minimal clothing on, okay? And I look up from the console for a minute and from me to the DJ is just all heads going like this with seven or 800 people in a row. And the PA is so loud that you couldn't talk at 80 feet. It'd be impossible to talk to somebody at 80 feet from the PA system, okay? Now, there were little ancillary areas, you know, with a little nitrous, blah, blah, blah. Like oh, nitrous yeah. bar. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Or And then, you know, they had the smart bar, and 
you know, small bar meeting. Well, they had this drinks that they used to make up that they mixed powders up that had different things in them. It was like you know, basically like uh, like, a, like a sort of uh, a good a goodie bag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so we had that spot, you know. And what was the drinking situation? Everyone just just B- BYOB. Uh, little or no alcohol. Okay. Little or no alcohol. You know what? I didn't start seeing alcohol at quote unquote rave parties until after the first run through with the police. Till way after that, I didn't see. So then that was another marijuana. thing. Marijuana. Marijuana. Uh, Molly. Okay. What they call it, Molly now. All right. We had other names for it, but it was actually what people nowadays think it is then. It was like the real deal. You Actual know? MDMA. Yeah, exactly. Um, there was some cocaine, but not a lot. Some ketamine. that's quite pricey, right? Like cocaine. Yeah, yeah. Um, some ketamine, not a lot. Uh, lots of pot. Okay. Like everybody around me smoked shit tons of weed, but all my sound guy, all the sound guys did. Like all the DJs and sound guys did. It was like a thing. But, <laughs> mar- marijuana and, uh, and techno, you think that goes hand in hand no. at all? I don't think it's a hand in hand thing. I don't. I think that marijuana and house music is right, <laughs> more right. prevalent. Because it is more, pretty more groovy, a little, little bit more. Right. Well, I think that there are a lot of purists now in techno that don't, that don't mess with any drugs. You know, I'm the type of person, personally, very shortly, my saying is whatever blows your skirt up. Okay? Like, I like things that I like that help me physically. There's some people that don't put anything in their body like that. You know what I'm saying? Whatever. But I'm just saying that alcohol was like non-existent. That's really interesting to know. And I would see it because I spent the first part of my career working in every top nightclub in my part of town. I know what it looks like when people are like doing clandestine alcohol into a place because people used to try to sneak their own bottles in all the time. So it was not prevalent at all, actually. It was not not prevalent at all. I guess one less thing for the cops to worry about. (laughs) Yeah, that didn't come into play until very late in the game in the warehouses when the alcohol started coming into play. And I, I don't... That would be a question for somebody that's a little bit uh, more uh, in tune with these, or what would you call it, the sociological scenario in the techno scene, why alcohol wasn't a thing, but I can tell you it wasn't a thing. Yeah, it wasn't a thing. Um, Beers on Monday and Tuesday, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a different, different scenario. Yeah. John Collins was saying how uh, the DJ's role was obviously to provide great quality music, but back then, the DJs went were not the promoters. Um, like nowadays, it's like you know, if you're a DJ and you're a promoter, you're expected, that, to, promote. You're expected to promote and you you expected to bring a crowd down. Right. But the DJ just focused on making great music, doing a great mix, and then the promoters focus on organization and uh, linking up with the sound guy and all the rest of that. So. Yes. I guess this conversation is more towards a person who was playing a role in creating the backbone of a party rather than actually, I guess, yeah, you, you were providing the music too, but you weren't DJing right. so much, right? That's so correct. what was that relationship like then? Was, did you have to speak to the DJs much or were, were they quite uppity or were, were you more like, hey, you know what, I'm gonna deal with the promoters? I, I would have to say with all the, if you took all the ups and downs and averaged it together, I would have to say that I had really awesome relationships with everybody in my sphere. Um, especially considering what my personality was like then. Okay. You know, my my good friends that are my age call that person the old Mike. All right. Oh, do we want to know the old Mike? <laughs> and you know, I was twenty something. I and in my mind had the world by the by the balls. Okay. So it was my way or get out of my way. Okay. Okay. Fuck you. This is my shit. That was my attitude then. You know, which is pretty much when you're twenty something and you're really good at what you do. Most 20-somethings are like that, you know? And, like, in retrospect, that's the way... In retrospect, looking at that, I feel that considering that and considering a lot of my friends that I was working with were like that, too, I had very positive relationships with everybody. And I had a decent reputation with the DJs that when they would come to a show, no matter where they were from in the world, when they would come to a show in Detroit, they would know that I would have the white towel over my arm, that I would take care of them. And because I was a DJ, I understood that they needed to be able to hear and that the freaking turntables had to work right. And that, it's, and that if they wanted a certain mixer, that that's the mixer I had to get. I couldn't go, no, you're using that. You know, I started doing that very early in my career because of my exposure to the live music people and them filling tech riders. Okay, I'm like, oh, that's a thing. I'll take that 
and I'll move it over here and I'll do it. Right. You see what I'm saying? So um, I feel that my relationships, you know, anytime you have friends that you work with, there's going to be this, okay? And I think all of us were in a very formative time in our life, so there was a lot of that that went on, but overall, I feel that it was very positive. How did it work in terms of, logistically speaking, the sound check and all that? Like, if you didn't know where the venue was, I guess you probably couldn't... Well, I knew where the venue was, okay. so you... but the, pu- the people coming to the party didn't know where okay. the venue was. So the DJs could do sound check, or was that... Sound checking was a thing that really didn't start occurring until we saw the first insurgence of electronic music popularity when it started being on the radio and we started having DJs that were getting paid large sums to play in actual nightclubs, okay? Here in our market, here. And that's when the sound check phenomenon started, I think, you know? Really what would happen is it was we would go set the PA up, we would go set the PA up, and then the promoters would come in and after I did my alignment process, we would put some of our favorite music on and they would say either yeah or no. So, you know, and you were basically hired on whether, on the valor of your last performance and your reputation. So it was always about that one you're doing right there. You know what I'm saying? To, to try to top what you did last time. And that was sort of the calling card and that was the sound check. Like very seldomly, in beginning times, did we have a DJ come in for sound check? Yeah, because at the end of the day, if the record sounds good and tight, then really the mixing aspect is up to the DJ. Right. Know? And then also that there's no feedback and the turntables don't skip and all those sort of things that were like voodoo to so many people. Yeah. Again, because I'm working in nightclubs and spinning records and having mobile rigs that I took out to different levels of like a really great hall with a concrete floor or a really shitty hall with a wood floor, I had to know tricks to make the turntables work because I couldn't just switch to CDs like you now can nowadays or what, or what have you. The phonograph was the way that you made music as a DJ. So I those were things that were important as well. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading in the same article that there were promoters called, there's one called Poor Boy. Uh-huh, or, Poor yeah. Boy, yeah. And so- That was, uh, that's uh, Dot. And uh, Brian, Mm. oh my gosh, what is Brian's last name? (laughs) He's probably in your phone book. He's a great friend of mine, and if he hears this ever, he's going to kill me for not remembering his last name. (laughs) Uh, What are these guys doing now? Are they they doing? Brian lives in Chicago with his wife and and their young son. Are the event organizing still? Like taking? Okay. Brian Gillespie. Okay, Brian Gillespie. Brian Gillespie. Yeah, and they did poor boy parties. And poor boy was the opposite of what we were doing, sort of, in the technology deployment. We were always trying to make our shit like what the big boys were doing. Okay, Okay? big boys meaning? Taking stadiums, like stuff that they were doing stadium rock shows with and adapting it to ours, like polished, flown correctly, all the newest amplifier technology, like that shit and going boom, that's what we're They were more like the, the renegade sound wave type stuff. They were like, pile up all these different kinds of speakers and just go for broke. That's, that's more the junglist type, you think? The more the junglist type, yeah. Okay, you know? what, what were the different crews then, would you say? Like, you mentioned the, the kind of renegade sound type and then the, I guess your crew would be more technically yes, first, exactly. I guess? Yeah, Yeah. What, what, what were the kind of different well, tribes? Well, the whole thing with Poor Boy was that it never was gonna be more than a $5 party. Okay. And okay. But, but the music was still techno, though. It was mostly house music. Okay. Uh, mostly house music at Poor Boy parties. Um, what, what, what was um, the parties you were working on? Like what everything. Can, can you name house, some of the promoters? Techno, electro. I did. I was the front of house engineer in the preferred sound company for Aux 88. Okay. Do you know who they are? Legendary techno bass from from the 90s. Um, that, that's we, a music collective. Yes. Okay. Techno bass. Yeah. Um, we did um, parties for Transmat. We did the system parties, which were house, disco, funk, uh, techno, you name it. Um, We did, man, you're really, I'm stretching my brain cells right now. We ran the gambit. My sound company, the the stuff that we were doing, we ran the gambit. One, on on a Friday, I could be doing three national act jazz bands outside in a public park. On Saturday, I could be setting up for a rave that went all the way through Sunday. Okay, so, and everything in between. I ran. How big was your team then? Um, at the peak, I had eight people working for me. Okay, yeah. So, this, um, at the peak, this is before the millennium? Is Correct. Okay. Yes. So, 
Eight people working for you and... Eight people and myself and my business partner. Okay. And yeah. then you were just literally just taking jobs and trying to split the time between all the schedules and Pretty set, much. set up sound systems. Yeah. We would take as much as we could handle as far as okay. gear-wise and then figure out how we were going to do so, it. Nothing's changed too much today. Um, <laughs> you still got eight gigs a day though, right? I, I mean, have three today and I have a team of pretty amazing men that work for me, you know, yeah. that allow me to step back and curate the vision of the company, Yeah, which is my favorite. Yeah. That's what I'm most comfortable doing. Yeah. But I still get out there and push speakers around and plug things in. Yeah, you gotta. Turn it up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Is there, uh, I think, yeah, thanks so much for giving us yep. so much good uh, content and like great stories, but, and I think you mentioned like Richie Hall and that experience being pretty memorable. Are there other really memorable sort of uh, stories that don't actually normally make it up to the media or get told that? Well, you're never gonna yourself? hear the stories about, unless you talk to some more of my friends. Yeah. You won't hear the stories about me standing on a milk crate and eight inches of standing water in the basement of the Banco building, tying in my power while it's turned on. Okay. Okay. Or climbing up poles to gain electricity because there was no electricity in the building with, you know, the wire over my shoulder and somebody shining a flashlight at me up there tying onto live wires. Um, there's so many stories about that, about um, my business partner and I driving a truck under a brand new truck under a low bridge and opening it up like a can, like a like a sardine can. I mean, there are, you know, there there's sort of the same, you know, the stories of John Aquaviva at the Banco Building and me in my formative years playing low frequency so loud that my crown amplifiers were shooting blue sparks out of the front of them, you know? It was like, that's how I got my nickname, my original nickname, Photon the Destroyer, because I broke so many things and I just didn't care. And I figured, well, you know what? This is one way to learn how to not do it, is to break it. Right. <laughs> Let's find out how far you can go. And how did you kind of get all the all, all the raves and everything out once once the raves got raided like that that must have been a ball age, right well you know there's some interesting anecdotes about that too you know about how we would there was one gentleman that that worked side by side with me a lot and RJ uh, Robert Johnson he was like my my, my like right hand for many years and um Robert and I when we would go into a new place that we hadn't been in before would always be looking for two ulterior means of egress that might not be evident to everybody else. So while we're lo loading in and setting up, we'd be looking around for, in a pinch, if the cops came in the two obvious entrances, how could we GTFO yeah. like that? Right. Okay. Because we knew that they were too lazy to pile all of our gear up and take it at the time. They didn't have a mechanism for seizing something like that like they do now. Right. Okay. Now they come with a truck and a bunch of alternative workforce workers, which are prisoners basically, and they load up all your shit and take it. Okay. Back in the day, they would come in with flashlights and look at these giant stacks of speakers and go, whoa, what is going on? Yeah, I'm not carrying all this shit out of here. Right, right. So it was a matter of like escaping and waiting for them to all be gone and then running the risk of the possibility of some of your smaller items not being there. Did that happen often? I mean, there were times when the police came in and grabbed a hold of the turntable rig and flipped the whole thing upside down while it was Trying to make a statement here, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, there was sort of the risk that you took. Yeah. You know, luckily, every, most of the expensive items were really big and heavy. Then it would be a matter of hiding somewhere until the cops were gone. And as it got later and later, you know, we would have somebody on standby to pick us up. It would be like, look, if this place gets raided, we're gonna call you. At that point, we have cell phones, you know, mobile phones. We're gonna call you, and this is gonna be the spot that we're gonna go take off to on foot that you're gonna come and pick us up from. And then we would chill and wait to hear that the coast is clear and then go back down there and get all of our stuff. So everything was super organized in that sense. And like, it was just you, like, well, you had to be, Yeah. you know, I mean, my first sound system that I had that was a real sound system, that what I would call real, like for doing larger events, I mean, I had $30,000 in it. By today's stand standards, that's not a lot of money for, but for a one man show with a helper, yeah. that's a lot of money. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But and I, You could afford that via various incomes from doing other raids and other yeah, parties. Doing from my DJing, from, I also DJed in gentlemen's clubs for quite some time. It's you know, more like top 40 type stuff, right? 
Gentlemen's Club? Yeah. Titty what, dancer. What kind of music would you play? Top 40 and rock and roll. Right, right, right. Yeah, mostly rock and roll. But that being said, if you were going to take the risk, there was part of the part of the risk for the reward of being involved with a great party. It was right. like, all right, I'm going to take my sound system there, and I'm going to get paid a certain amount of money in cash, and... If it was a place that you'd been to a few times before, you knew that the possibility of it getting busted was higher. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, sometimes being in a new place was better, but we always had to have a plan, you know, which was also very important because the production business is about having a freaking plan. Mm-hmm. No matter, having five plans, right. you know, <laughs> and that taught you yeah. to have a plan. What happens if this happens? What mm. happens if that happens? What goes on if this happens? You know, um, luckily there was never any shooting. Yeah, because I not that I remember. There yeah. was never any shooting. It's, it all sounds fairly risky, and there's a level of danger involved with the whole project. But for yeah. the most part, it de- definitely does sound very uh, positive, very loving. Uh, a, a lot of camaraderie between promoters, DJs, and te- technicians. Mm-hmm. Learning a lot here about how, actually, aside from like police getting involved, like. You pretty much have the best setting ever, hey? Like, yes. I mean, in retrospect, it was a very special time where a lot of very special things take place with a lot of very special people and relationships that are forged in the fire of adversity. Right. Okay? Like, very happy and pleased to have been a part of it, for sure. All of it had has shaped me in a positive manner. You know, all of it really has shaped me in a positive manner. It was kind of di- it was kind of difficult on my personal life. You know, yeah. I have two ex-wives to show for it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but uh, that's basically like based on different lifestyle, I guess. Well, part of it was my behavior as a youngster, but the other part of it was the amount of time that I worked. I mean, you know, imagine having a young wife at home in a house that you just bought together and working 60 to 70 hours a week. Right, right, right. What kind of strain that creates on a relationship. Sure. You know, and uh, um, I guess the most important thing that I've probably taken from the whole whole experience is that it's very important even as you get older in life and you may slip into a false sense of security that there's nothing else to learn. It's not true. Yeah. I mean... From then and now and moving forward in my life personally and professionally, the most important thing I would say now that it taught me is to always be open to the idea that you're going to learn something that day. No matter how minuscule it is that you have on your schedule, no matter what it is that I'm doing, no matter who it is that I'm going to interact from, to always go into this situation knowing that there's a possibility for me to gain knowledge from that situation because that's really what that was all about is hardcore down in the trenches learning every single experience that that we went through together i feel that there's you know there's certain things that the talent touches that will change a lot and that you have to keep up with and you have to balance um budgetary constraints with keeping up with it and what is sort of in the pocket in the middle um but as far as speaker technology and that i think more importantly what's important is to understand the overall issue which is curating the experience of the artist and the patrons that's more important than any speaker or cd player or certain turntable or certain mixer yeah those things are all important because they're sort of uh cogs in the wheels if you will but it's important to be able to first of all understand the vision of your client that you're working for to take on and own that vision and then use that in curating the experience of the artist and the patrons. Because if you get those two things right, you got a party. You got the artist in the pocket where they're comfortable and they can do their thing. And you have your part in presenting that to the patrons in the pocket, you got a party. If the, if the client puts the people there like it's their job to do, then you're good. I feel that there are a lot of so-called professionals in my part of the business that don't look at it from that side of the spectrum, that are always looking at it, what's the best speaker to have, what's the best amplifiers to have, oh, I've got these brand new CD players that everybody likes, you know. I'll take, a, I'll take an expert on a pile of garbage over a chump on the newest shit any day of the week. Yeah. And somebody that loves the game, yeah. that is a doctor status, I'll take him on a pile of PV. Yeah over a chump 
that thinks he knows something on a pile of whatever it is that's the best. I'll bet on that guy yeah, yeah. every time that that's going to be the better party. Right. And that's where I try to live. Okay. You know, and that's what I try to inspire and the young men that I have, young men and women that I have working for me sure. is that, yes, we really do try to give you the best tools possible, but I want you to think about yeah. being in the position of the DJ and being in the position of the patron yeah. and making sure that the DJ is in the pocket and that it's loud enough but not too loud and that yeah. it's tonality, yeah. the tonality of it is appealing to everybody, yeah. okay? And that the DJ's monitor sounds good yeah. and go just go up there once in a while. Yeah, and make sure it's cool. Yeah, okay? Yeah. Yeah. So they know you're present. Yeah, yeah. That's what I mean by curating the experience. I think that that's yeah. what's most important. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that you did back in the day or, you know, during the, 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 the golden era or the sound war that you wouldn't, you wouldn't have done? Like, if you have to go back in time? I wouldn't go back and change anything because each one of those experiences is pivotal to making myself what I am nowadays. You know, maybe I wouldn't have got married the second time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's another. I don't know. I might. I pretty much might have still done that too. Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah that's another podcast, <laughs> man. If you'd like to hear more stories like this one and more from the world of creative culture and beyond, check them out at Macon.com. That's M-A-E-K-A-N dot com. Or search for us on your favorite podcast app. <laughs>